welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 246, The Hard Edge of Soft Power. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jorge, Jared, and John for signing up already. When I write an episode, I begin the process by looking at what's happened in the past, like before the event, not just in the past. Obviously, I'm looking at the past. And then I also look at what's going to happen in the future. And only after I do both of those do I allow myself to focus on what's actually occurring for this episode. And I do this because I want to know the context of the events. The sources that survive don't often give us the why or even the how. They're all about the what and the when. And that's not the real meat of history. If you want to know what people were actually experiencing, you need to know what they had already gone through and why they were making the decisions that they made. Now, this will become easier as we move forward in time, because we'll eventually have diaries and personal letters and detailed accounts of political meetings. But even now, if you look close you can see a bigger picture. We can get at least a little bit to the why and the how of history. Now, as you'll remember, the primary sources that we rely on most heavily in this show are the writings of Asser and the Chronicle. And of course, we also rely on the modern historians who interpret them. However, as we've discussed, many details get left out of those documents. And so I supplement with other primary sources various documents that have survived, and some of the most numerous are land charters. And these seemingly boring little sheets of everyday medieval bureaucracy tell a story all of their own. And sometimes they tell a story that the official accounts seem to ignore or even hide. So you might remember that shortly after Alfred handed over London to Athelred, Lord of Mercia, he got married to Alfred's daughter, Athelflaed. Now, this marriage signaled a tightening of political and familial bonds between Wessex and Mercia, and that's not overly surprising. But if you look at the land charters from after this time, this marriage may also have been the start of a particular noble becoming powerful in their own right. In her own right. Starting in the 880s and through to where we are now in the mid-890s, Athelflaed's name starts showing up in important documents. When we look at church documents and land charters, Athelflaed is there, witnessing the charters and granting lands, gifts, and privileges to the church, and she's doing so jointly with her husband, Athelred of Mercia. And if charters being witnessed by noble wives was a commonplace thing, this really wouldn't merit any discussion. But it wasn't common. It has happened several times in the past, but usually it's a sign of a politically potent woman moving through the halls of power. It's also typically only something that you see in Mercia, which, for whatever reason, had a tradition of politically powerful women that dates back as far as their pagan days, though it did continue through into the Christian rulers as well, with even King Offa's queen, Chinnathrith, appearing on coins. But even in Mercia, women appearing on charters was fairly rare. And then suddenly, we have Athelflaed appearing all over the place in documents, acting like a high-ranking nobleman would in any other court. And that's shocking considering that Wessex was the dominant culture in the Anglo-Saxon territories, and Wessex wasn't all that fond about women in power. 
Do you remember that bizarre apocryphal story about Aid Burr and Charlemagne? It was the one about the West Saxon queen who poisoned her husband, then fled to Francia, tried to hook up with Charlemagne's son, and then Charlemagne took it on the chin, and, and her life went even farther downhill from there. Basically, it was all pretty much a parable on how girls are dirty skanks who shouldn't be in power. Literally, that was the point of the whole story. In fact, the reason why we even know that story is because Asser tells it to us, and he says that's the reason why there are no queens in Wessex. And of course, this story is clearly nothing more than some very ham-fisted propaganda, and we took it apart in an episode a while back. But I'm bringing it up now because it's evidence of what seems to be the prevailing cultural approach to women in power for the Anglo-Saxon territories in the late 9th century. Essentially, at least in the ruling class, the argument was that you have to keep women out of power, otherwise they'll start poisoning people and try and bang your son. And that was more than just a feeling. It appears to have been the policy in Wessex. Ailswitha, who was Alfred's wife and Athelflaed's mother, didn't witness charters. Nor did she grant land or do any of the other noble tasks that Athelflaed was carrying out. Ailswitha wasn't even granted the title of queen. She was just Ailswitha. And yet here we have Athelflaed, appearing in charters, granting lands, granting privileges. She's doing all kinds of stuff. And one reason why she might have had more power than her mother may simply be the difference in Mercian politics versus Wessex politics. Athelflaed may have been able to flex her own power in Mercia because the Mercians were okay with it in a way that her home court wouldn't have been. And we assume this was at least partially the case, right? Because if the nobles of Mercia didn't want to accept the presence of a woman, they had alternatives. I mean, this whole thing could have easily resulted in a coup or a civil war. And those were two things that the Mercian nobles were actually quite good at. And yet they didn't. And that suggests that there must have been at least some degree of acceptance of Athelflaed. But here's something else to consider. Alfred himself might have made a small change in the culture of Wessex. You see, Alfred modeled the education of Athelflaed and Edward on his own education. And Athelflaed was the firstborn by several years. And I'll be talking more about this in an upcoming members episode. But this means that she was raised in court just like her dad was. And then later, she was joined by her younger brother, Edward. And considering that she was the first... And considering how the House of Wessex didn't tend to have long lifespans, it's quite possible that the reason for her presence in court was that she was being groomed for some level of rule from an early age, just in case. But even if she wasn't being directly groomed, it's an odd thing that she would be trained in court, and that later on she would wield so much power in one of Alfred's client kingdoms especially considering that Asser made it explicitly clear that women weren't allowed to have a political role in Wessex because of their wickedness. And it makes you wonder what Ailswitha thought about all of this. I mean, here we have a Mercian noblewoman who was married to the king of Wessex, and she was denied having any title. So, would she be pleased that her daughter had more direct power than she did? Did she have a role in getting her daughter into court and into that position? After all... Ilswitha was Mercian, and she was from an ancient royal line, so she might have imparted some of the culture of her home kingdom upon her daughter. Or it's also possible that she was truly powerless and was watching this from the outside, and Alfred was doing what he wished for his own reasons. I don't know. 
but we have direct evidence that Athelflaed was already showing herself to be a political force within Mercia long before the Danes set up a hostile camp at Hartford. So that's the context of the past. Looking forward, we also know that our power grows within Mercia. People who are fans of this period and of Mercia are probably already familiar with her. Even now, Athelflaed is known as the Lady of Mercia. She's still famous. And the reason for that is because not long after this period, she'll be leading Mercia in war. And that should raise a few eyebrows, because Mercia wasn't the sort of culture that traditionally felt bound by the power of bloodline alone. I mean, remember, the Mercians were a warrior people. For centuries, they'd been the mill wall of the Heptarchy. And they were also a raucous people who had multiple royal lineages who could and did depose monarchs for failing to meet their expectations. So I find it hard to believe that they would willingly follow Athelflaed unless she had already showed some aptitude for war. And how would she have shown that aptitude unless she was present for a battle or two? Now, of course, we have to acknowledge that it is possible that the Mercians were really just willing to roll with it. It's also possible that it was political. And, for example, they just really didn't want to anger her brother, Edward, by refusing to acknowledge her. I can't say that wasn't the case. But given Mercia's history with war, and its powerful warrior past, I can't help but wonder how we got from the earlier story, where we had the daughter of Alfred the Great witnessing her husband's charters, and then got to her later story, where she's ruling Mercia and successfully leading them in war. So that's the context, and that's what those odd little bureaucratic papers and the future rise in power might be whispering in our ear about what's happening right now in 895. At this point in our story, Athelred has been conducting his war against the Danes for years, and I think it's possible that somebody got omitted from the official chronicle. When the Danes moved on Hartford, or when Mercia marched on Haston at Benfleet, and then Buddington, and then Chester. How close was Athelflaed to the decision-making processes? How close was she to the battles? We don't know. But we do know that one day, the Mercian military will have enough respect for her that they'll carry out her orders, despite the prevailing culture of their rulers in Wessex. And the foundation for this may have been starting right now, in this part of the story. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this next part. Because most heroes don't spring fully fledged onto the battlefield or into power. They grow into it. And so with that in mind, let's get back to Hartford. Imagine you're Athelred of Mercia. You're a warrior elderman who has defeated multiple armies in the field of battle. You've led your troops against rivals on both sides of your borders. Against both the Welsh and the Danes. But even though you've enjoyed numerous victories... Even though you've captured Haston's own family during one of your attacks, these Danes haven't given up. Even worse, they stormed out of their holdings and encamped themselves about a day's march from your prized city of London. How do you cow a people like this? How do you win over them? If Christian magic, victories in the field, and even noble hostages don't work, what would? Would you have to resort to complete annihilation of your enemy? Perhaps. And at Buddington and Chester, the Eldermen of the South do seem to be toying with the idea of completely wiping out the Danes. 
but I wonder if Hartford felt different. Chester and Buddington involved invading armies. What was encamped on the River Lee was something else entirely. They brought their families with them. This wasn't just an army. They obviously weren't looking to just take what they could and run off. This was a settlement. These were squatters, really violent, stubborn squatters. So with that in mind, does that change your tactics? I mean, the Anglo-Saxons were slavers, so I suppose that wiping out the army and selling their families wouldn't be out of the question. But as we've spoken about before, these battles often broke down to dangerous shoving matches that were mostly decided by morale. And whose morale do you think would fare better? The members of the Ferd who were fighting in unfamiliar lands dozens of miles from home, or the Danes, who knew that if their shield wall broke, their families would be killed or sold into slavery. This was a real standoff. But at the same time, the Eldermen couldn't simply do nothing. You've got a settlement of Scandinavian pirates in your lands. Ignoring them wasn't an option. They were posing an existential threat to the villages in the surrounding area, to London, and potentially to the Anglo-Saxon power structure. They had to be dealt with. And granted, Alfred was dealing with the Danes. After the successes of the previous year, King Alfred had realized that now would be a good time to limit the allies that this pirate army could rely upon. And so he sent mighty elderman Athelnoth of Somerset to Jorvik and he was tasked with negotiating some sort of truce with King Guthred. Now, luckily for Athelnoth, the recent loss at Chichester, combined with the fact that Guthred was already embroiled in a bitter fight with his fellow Scandinavians over Rutland, was making him more receptive to the idea of peace with Alfred. And consequently, that was potentially taking one more threat off the table. But despite any progress that Athelnoth was making, that wasn't solving the immediate problem in Hartford. Furthermore, Alfred might be king, and Alfred might have his own diplomatic way of solving these problems. But London was held by the Mercians, and the Mercians had their own way of solving disputes. Mercia subscribed to the diplomatic philosophy of ass-kicking. So for several months, the forces of London gathered, waiting for the weather to improve. And in the summer months, they marched. The Chronicle tells us that this was, quote, a large party, end quote. So we're probably looking at the garrison of London, the surrounding burrs, and several supporting firds. And the Chronicle does say that this large party was also supported by, quote, other folk, end quote. Furthermore, we know that there were a number of nobles who accompanied this army. So we can be reasonably sure that what marched upon Hartford was a sizable combined force. And ahead of them lay a group of Danes who had already been defeated by the Mercians at Benfleet, Buddington, and Chester. And sure, they picked up some East Anglians along the way, but what could the East Anglians do when facing down with the might of Mercia? And at this point, I should remind you of how previous fights between Mercia and East Anglia have gone. Do you remember King Bjornwolf of Mercia? And King Ludeca of Mercia? and how short their reigns were? I'm not sure if the Mercians remembered, because as they advanced upon Hartford, and as they saw that what awaited them wasn't just the sizable encampment of Danes, but it was also a network of ditches, ramparts, and sturdy defenses, well, the Mercians continued their advance. 
It didn't matter to them that the Danes had used the several months they had in Hartford well, and that they were dug in. They didn't care because they were Mercians. So they locked their shields and went to work. And it was a slaughter. Four Danes died in the melee, and the Mercian army was shattered and sent fleeing back to London. And now, Athelred, Lord of Mercia, was in an even worse position than he had started in. The morale of his fyrd was damaged, and they had wasted precious time on this adventure. And it was time they didn't have, because Hartford wasn't just some random encampment. The Danes had chosen their position well, and as a result, they commanded large portions of the farmland that the city of London and London Witch relied upon to survive. So every day that passed brought them closer to autumn, harvest time. If the Danes were left where they were, London was facing a famine. And that got Alfred's attention. The fact of the matter was that Alfred was a learned man, and he had probably read Vegetius. And so he would have known that the ancient Roman tactician had argued, and I would say he argued it correctly, that famine was more savage than the sword. This was no longer just a Mercian problem. With the threat of starvation, it was a problem for the kingdom at large. And so Alfred's first task here was to figure out how he could get to the crops. So Alfred raised his army. Military units from the burrs placed all around his kingdom came to his banner. And once they gathered, they marched north towards the Danes at Hartford. As they approached the city, Alfred developed his plan. If you traded places with Athelnoth or Athelhelm or even Athelred, I'm relatively certain that a heroic charge would have been the first order of business. His warlike eldermen had repeatedly shown that they had a thirst for victory in the field of battle. But for some reason that we'll probably never know, Alfred was clearly cut from a different cloth, and he seemed to view the problem very differently. What they needed was food, and that meant that they needed to find a way to give their peasants time and safety to harvest their crops. What they didn't necessarily need was to defeat the Danes in battle. In fact, they might not even need to encounter the Danes in order to get to the crops. All they needed to do was create the conditions necessary for the peasants to do their work. It wouldn't be heroic, songs wouldn't be sung about this, but it would get the job done. London would be fed, and more importantly, by harvesting all the available crops, the famine that was currently threatening his people would be able to be directed against the Danes. After all, once all the crops were taken, the Danes would be left without any foraging opportunities. So the army of Wessex marched and probably picked up peasants along the way. This was going to be a large-scale, lightning agricultural strike. And once they reached the fort at Hartford, Alfred placed his men between the Danes and the peasants, and ordered them to stand watch. The Danes, from within their encampment, were now left with a choice. Either watch as all the available resources were stripped from the region, or come out of their fort and fight on even ground. Given the size of Alfred's army, the Danes chose to watch as field after field was reaped. Once the problem of keeping London fed was dealt with, Alfred moved on to his next problem. How would he get these Danes out of his lands? Well, thanks to the harvesting that they had just conducted, he knew that he could starve the Danes out, provided 
that he could keep them from being resupplied. So ironically, to solve the issue of getting the Danes out of his land, he first had to figure out how to keep them in their own camp. But the trouble here was that these pirates were slippery. They had proven that they were quite good at escapes on foot. And if you added in waterways, well, then they became nearly impossible to contain thanks to their longships. And unfortunately for Alfred, these Danes were sitting on the River Lee, which was still navigable for them, despite the insistence that Alfred placed upon building bridges and burrs to control movement along the rivers. As we talked about earlier, the local nobility had been slow walking that construction for ages, and this was a consequence of that. As a result, should these Danes begin to feel the pressure of famine, all they would need to do is board their ships, row down the River Lee, and raid all along the Thames estuary until Alfred's forces could catch up with them, and then they could row elsewhere. It was a major flaw in his defenses. But Alfred had a plan, and predictably, it involved the implementation of infrastructure. While his army stayed encamped close to the Danish fort, Alfred rode a little way downstream and found a spot along the River Lee that had solid foundations on both sides of the river. He gathered his men and ordered them to begin digging ditches on both sides of the river, and then begin the construction of two burrs. The plan was simple. He would create a double burr with a low-hanging bridge connecting both of them across the river, and in doing so, the Danes would be unable to use their ships to flee back to the Thames estuary and to their allies. They would be trapped. The workers set about constructing the forts and bridge as quickly as they could, but as soon as the construction was fully underway, the Danes realized what was happening. Now don't forget that some of these Danes were the same raiders who had fought at Paris, and who had also been locked up for months by one of these fortified bridges. They knew exactly how this next scene would go down, and how costly and time-consuming it could be to assault this kind of defensive infrastructure. When they had come here, they had prepared for a direct attack. They were ready for it, and when Athelred delivered it, they handled it without much of a problem. But taking all the crops, and then building fortifications to hem them in, they hadn't expected that, nor were they prepared for anything like it. When they dug in at Hartford, they thought they built a fortress. But now, they realized that all around them, Alfred was building them a tomb. They weren't occupying land, they were imprisoned upon it. And it was only a matter of time before they got a message from Alfred stating it puts the lotion on its skin. They were bested. Again. But given how the Danes were terribly outnumbered, they still couldn't risk an open fight with Alfred and his army. Especially since doing so would put their families at risk. They needed another plan. And it turns out they had one. It's not clear exactly when it happened. We don't know whether it was under the cover of night or whether it was while the West Saxons were distracted or feasting or under the belief that there was some kind of truce. The Chronicle, unfortunately, is quite vague on this, and Abels argues that the vagueness of the scribes here was intentional, because the Anglo-Saxons wanted to hide their disappointment and shame. But, however it happened, the Danes presented the Anglo-Saxons with a situation where they had to choose between three targets. First, the army struck out of their encampment and charged northwest as hard as they could, but they left everything behind, including their ships, which were very valuable war booty. 
So by doing this, the Danes have placed Alfred's forces in a position where they had to pick between two goals. Seize the ships or chase the army. And then there was the third target, the families of the Danes. As the army fled to the northwest, their families fled east towards East Anglia. Now, we aren't told exactly how it was all carried out, but by looking at the tactics, my guess is that the plan was to create the confusion necessary for the families to be able to escape. And think about it. Ships were a major prize, so I'm sure that some war bands would have rushed to grab them. But there was also the fact that the Danish army was back in the field. And now that it was purely warriors without any camp followers, it would have been far more mobile and agile. It would have necessitated a pursuit from Alfred's army, and a quick one. There wouldn't be any time to rove around capturing slaves and ferrying them back to London for sale. They had to move quickly on this. So Alfred's army rode hard after the Vikinger army, and the garrison of London seized the ships, bringing them back to the city. And as for the families of the invading Danes, well, this looked like it worked. They escaped back to East Anglia. But for 200 kilometers, Alfred's army pursued the fleeing Danes until finally they reached Bridge North in Shropshire. But they were too late. The Danes' flight had been too fast, and the head start had given them enough time to be able to dig some rough defenses which they then set about augmenting while Alfred's army could do little more than watch. Based upon how the last assault went, it was simply too risky to fight the Danes on their own terms. And so despite getting the Danes out of Hartford, Alfred still couldn't finish them off. And the Danes settled down to winter at Bridge North. Though Alfred knew something that they didn't. Much like how Haston's fleet appeared to be seeking support from the former allied kingdom of Gwyneth, it seems that this army was hoping to gain the support of Northumbria. But just like with Gwyneth, Alfred had been using a mix of military power and diplomacy to eliminate those avenues of support. Gwyneth, as you might remember, was now a client kingdom of Wessex. And as for Northumbria? Well, Athelnoth of Somerset was up there right now working out a truce with their king. These Danes were really effective on the field of battle. But Alfred didn't just fight them on the field. He also fought them with diplomacy and infrastructure. It's not glamorous work. It's not full of glory, and songs are rarely sung of it. But whether they liked it or not, these Danes were learning just how effective soft power can be. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. Wait. What do you mean there are no songs about harvesting? She thinks my sexy. Oh, God. I can't believe you know that. Um, and we have lots of other communities that you can join, and you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. All right, it's time for another pub quiz. You know the drill. Question 1. At Farnham, the great Scandinavian army of 250 ships' crews was defeated in battle. Who is credited in securing that victory? Question 2. The great Ferd chased the remaining Danes from Farnham to a small island called Thorny on the Thames. But in their chase, they forgot to bring their own supplies. 
And there was also one other major problem that the West Saxons were facing that made besieging the Danes on the island very difficult. What was that problem? Question three. While one part of the West Saxon Ferd was dealing with the Danes at Thorny, and Haston was operating from his base of operations in Benfleet, another front in this war opened up in the West, thanks to the Northumbrians and East Anglians attacking. 60 ships landed at Exeter, and 40 ships landed at Devon. King Alfred had an army, but he could only be in one place. He needed to make a choice. So where did he take his army? Question four. After the Danes at Thorny surrendered, many of them simply relocated to Haston's fortress at Benfleet. From that location, Haston and his men ravaged the Mercian countryside. In response, a great fyrd was raised out of London, Londonwich, and the surrounding Mercian lands, and they attacked Benfleet. Who led that army? Question five. Benfleet was sacked, their longships were seized, and slaves were captured, including several notable individuals. Who were the high-value captives that were taken in the attack on Benfleet? Question six. Haston wasn't at Benfleet, so he survived. And when he returned to find his fortress destroyed and his people taken captive, what did he do? Question seven. Despite his loss, Haston came up with a daring plan and made a lightning strike to a town bordering Wales, Buddington. But Wessex had changed, and in response to this attack, Elderman Athelhelm of Wiltshire, a veteran of Alfred's guerrilla war, mobilized a mounted unit to keep track of the invading fleet. So rather than finding undefended lands, a massive force converged upon Haston's fleet. And the use of burrs as messaging posts and the existence of a standing third played a large role in putting together that large force. But so did a cultural change that had taken place in Wessex. What was that cultural shift? Question eight. The Anglo-Saxons defeated Haston at Buddington, but he still managed to escape. However, when he returned to East Anglia, it was clear he couldn't continue to use Shoebury as his base of operations. So he fled to Chester but then he was chased out of Chester by the Ferd, and he chose a new target and attacked where? Question nine. While all this was happening, Alfred was still stuck in a siege, a long, boring siege. But finally, the Northumbrian East Anglian forces surrendered and agreed to go home. Only they didn't. Instead, at least a portion of them, likely under the command of King Sigifirth, attacked Chichester. How did that attack go? Question 10. After the defeat of the Danes at Appledore, and after the defeat of the Northumbrian East Anglian fleets, also after the loss of Benfleet and Buddington and Chester, Haston looked at his forces and had to make a decision. After all of those losses, what did he decide to do next? All right, let's see how you did. Question one. At Farnham, the great Scandinavian army of 250 ships crews was defeated in battle. Who is credited in securing that victory? Edward, son of Alfred. Question two. The great Ferd chased the remaining Danes from Farnham to a small island called Thorny on the Thames. But in their chase, they forgot to bring their own supplies. 
And there was also one other major problem that the West Saxons were facing that made besieging the Danes on the island very difficult. What was that problem? The term of service for the Ferd was up, and many of the members were leaving the battlefield to return home. Question 3. While one part of the West Saxon Ferd was dealing with the Danes at Thorney, and Haston was operating from his base of operations in Benfleet, another front in this war opened up in the West, thanks to the Northumbrians and East Anglians attacking. 60 ships landed at Exeter, and 40 ships landed at Devon. King Alfred had an army, but he could only be in one place. He needed to make a choice. So where did he take his army? He went to Exeter. Question four. After the Danes at Thorny surrendered, many of them simply relocated to Haston's fortress at Benfleet. From that location, Haston and his men ravaged the Mercian countryside. In response, a great ferd was raised out of London, Londonwich, and the surrounding Mercian lands, and they attacked Benfleet. Who led that army? Athelred, Lord of Mercia. Question five. Benfleet was sacked, their longships were seized, and slaves were captured, including several notable individuals. Who were the high-valued captives that were taken in the attack on Benfleet? Haston's wife and children. Question six. Haston wasn't at Benfleet, so he survived. And when he returned to find his fortress destroyed and his people taken captive, what did he do? He relocated 10 miles to the east at Shubury, and he built a new fortress. Question seven. Despite his loss, Haston came up with a daring plan and made a lightning strike to a town bordering Wales, Buddington. But Wessex had changed, and in response to this attack, Elderman Athelhelm of Wiltshire, a veteran of Alfred's guerrilla war, mobilized a mounted unit to keep track of the invading fleet. So rather than finding undefended lands, a massive force converged upon Haston's fleet. And the use of burrs as messaging posts and the existence of a standing third played a large role in putting together that large force. But so did a cultural change that had taken place in Wessex. What was that cultural shift? The Eldermen no longer saw themselves as only responsible for their own shires. They saw themselves now as part of a larger kingdom and responsible for all of it. So they took part in battles far from their homes. And consequently, we see veterans like Athelmoth of Somerset answering the call at Buddington. Question eight. The Anglo-Saxons defeated Haston at Buddington, but he still managed to escape. However, when he returned to East Anglia, it was clear he couldn't continue to use Shubury as his base of operations. So he fled to Chester, but then he was chased out of Chester by the Ferd, and he chose a new target, and attacked where? He attacked the Welsh. Question nine. While all this was happening, Alfred was still stuck in a siege, a long, boring siege. But finally, the Northumbrian East Anglian forces surrendered and agreed to go home. Only they didn't. Instead, at least a portion of them, likely under the command of King Sigafirth, attacked Chichester. How did that attack go? They got their asses kicked by the local peasants who were manning the burr. Question 10. 
After the defeat of the Danes at Appledore, and after the defeat of the Northumbrian East Anglian fleets, also after the loss of Benfleet and Buddington and Chester, Haston looked at his forces and had to make a decision. After all of those losses, what did he decide to do next? He invaded Mercia, and he built a fortress at Hartford, just 23 miles from London. Why? Because f you, that's why. I hope you did well, and we'll see you on the next one.